Hello, friends and enemies. Welcome to another episode of Hybrid Unlimited. This is me, Steffi Cohen. Today, we have Hayden Bo and Ben Pakulski, a good friend of ours for a long time now. Um, he is a professional bodybuilder and an educator and a self-made entrepreneur. And today, even though short, we dive into a variety of topics, starting from how he how he made his way into the fitness industry starting 12 years ago, selling online programs, the success that he saw initially, then moving into some of his training philosophies as far as hypertrophy goes. We talk a lot about strength and health, but we still haven't dived into uh, the bodybuilding world and, and how to maximize your training if gaining muscle is one of your goals. So today we talk a lot about that. And then finally, we talk a little bit about business. What are some of the things that he's done over the last few years to have such a lucrative business and continue growing and how and where he is currently at with his business? Um, before we get into it, I want to mention this episode is sponsored by Go Strong Equipment. They manufacture strength training equipment based on your needs. So whatever you want, whatever you need, whatever you desire, they can make. They're really amazing people and they make really high quality stuff. So hit them up, hit them up at gostrongequipment.com. And Hayden wasn't here to record this intro, but now he is. So what's up guys. <laughs> uh, most importantly, uh, our buddy BPAC is Canadian. So shout out to the Canadian boys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So sit back, enjoy this podcast. Hello. So you guys are interview me. Yeah. All right. This is exciting. <laughs> I like to talk. Oh, we Thank know you that. guys for being here in my gym. Um, Did it take you by surprise? I think we, we, we spoke maybe like a day before I decided to come. He's like, oh yeah, we should definitely link up, be in a podcast, grab some beers, deadlift. And I'm like, yeah, sure. And then the next day I was like, I'm on my way. <laughs> <laughs> it's so yes. funny because I feel like in this industry, people are so flaky that you can throw that out there like. 10 times and five times people are going to cancel. Yeah. So for me, like I'm the type of guy who would do what you did, but then you get down there and everyone's like, oh, I'm, like you say, flaky. Right? Like, so I'm very glad you guys came. <laughs> Either way, you know, I, I've, that's happened to me so many times that I don't even, it doesn't even matter. I take my chance. I go where I need to go to, to seek an opportunity. And yeah. if it happens, great. And if not, whatever, like we still got a trip out of it, you know? Yeah. I mean, and, and what we needed this more than anything to get out of the house for the first time in this is true. forever. This is true. But you, they're not. Although if, if people are flaky, I have no problem in the, in the next encounter to bring it up immediately. So, <laughs> <laughs> and make the situation really uncomfortable. Right. So with Bradley Martin, he asked me to fly over to LA to film some stuff. I flew over to LA, didn't film anything. Wow. Right. And then next time he came over to Miami, wanted to do something. And I'm like, okay, are, you, are we actually going to do something or are you going to blow me off like you did in LA? <laughs> and he's like, oh, oh no, I mean, and I'm like, ah, don't worry about it. Yeah. You never pull any punches. Yeah, no. It's so good. People so good. Uh, here are not taking coronavirus as seriously as Miami. I noticed that immediately. Dude, it's really uncomfortable. So two weeks ago, everyone was completely quarantined. You walk in the road, there's nobody there. And then the governor, I guess, announced that we're going to start to slowly phase it in. And then everybody just came out of the woodwork and was like, guys, slowly means slowly. Yeah. And I think, you know, you realize that most people don't think of repercussions and, and they just act. So rather than going slowly, okay, I'm just going to, you know, do what I need to do. They just, I literally, everyone was congregating on the roads. The roads were busy. There was traffic. And I was like, what's, what's the matter with people? And it's just, boom. It's not, yeah. uh, we, we called Starbucks this morning because in Miami, you can't go into any places. So they have to have a drive-through. So I was like, Hey, do you guys have a drive-through? They're like, no. I'm like, Oh, well, how do we get coffee from you? He's like, you just walk in. She thought I was insane, mm -hmm. but I was like, we're stuck in this like post-apocalyptic environment yeah. in Miami where everyone's so hypersensitive about it that, uh, yeah. I think I the population of Miami is exponentially greater than here. So, yeah. and people are dumber there too. You know, it's, it's a bit of a, it, it's a <laughs> well, crazy place. And, and now you say that, and, and I think it's so important to acknowledge that most people don't think, and that's not an insult. That's just a reality. And I think it's important that the government steps in and goes, Hey guys, we're going to shut everything down because yeah. otherwise people just wouldn't do it. Like what was happening in the beaches in Florida? Like, unless you say, Hey, you must stay at home. Everyone's going to go, that's oh, not that big of a deal. 
Okay. It is that big of a deal. Stay home. Right. Yeah. 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 They need that. They Miami needs like the parent figure to just yeah, yeah. keep yeah. everybody Guide in line. line. Yeah. You Absolutely. can't let people choose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like Vegas on the water. Mm. That's a good comparison. Yeah. Hey, Ben, thank you so much for uh, being in our podcast. We appreciate it. I don't think we've ever had or we've ever talked about an awesome Canadian bodybuilder on before. <laughs> yeah, too. Yeah. We, we, you know, we focus a lot on, on strength. We've done, you know, a few like health topics, but we haven't talked at all about hypertrophy. I and used to be kind of strong. I, yeah. 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 What's your best uh, bench? I wasn't ever a great bencher. Probably 500. <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh, that's strong. What? I did, I did four. I did 750 on the squat for triples. That was early in my life. I think I could have been a good powerlifter. I think so. Deadlift 750 consistently. 800. I think I got once. Um, 750. I would do for threes in the squat, but I've never usually go less than a three on the squat because I would, didn't need to. I was trying to grow. Did you train for strength or was it just a byproduct of your other training? Byproduct of me being, wanting to be a meathead. So when I was in university, I would train three days a week. So I would usually um, either deadlift twice and squat once or squat twice and deadlift once. And the other auxiliary stuff would just be playing. So that's why my physique kind of represented that on stage is like lots of squats, lots of deadlifts, not enough upper body. (laughs) In your, uh, because you're a professional bodybuilder. Yeah. In your initial stages of bodybuilding, I know that you went through a phase where, was it, do you think it was because squat and deadlift made your torso appear bigger. And is, no. yeah, is that was real? It? Is that a real yeah, thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I love that you brought that up because nobody's ever explained this in a way that's intelligent and I think I've decoded it. So you'll get when muscle hypertrophies, it's, it's let's say I put a 200 pound dumbbell on the floor and I bent over to pick it up. Your body's going to use exactly as much muscle as it needs to, to move that 200 pounds. Well, how that muscle is distributed matters. So when you pick up a 200 pound dumbbell and I pick up a 200 pound dumbbell, barbell, whatever, uh, it's going to be a different muscular signature, meaning my body's going to use a certain proportion of muscles and your body's going to use a different proportion of muscles, right? So your glutes may work really well. My quads may work really well. Your body's going to find a solution to move this load because you're saying move this load. So if your body goes into a position that makes the abdominals or the erectors a prime mover, it's going to have to use those muscles. So the muscles of the waist are meant to be a stabilizer. They're meant to be an anti-flexor, an anti-extensor, right? So they're not meant to be a prime mover. But if you go into the bottom of a squat where now your hip flexion is beyond what it's capable of doing. So I've got into terminal hip flexion, maximal hip flexion. I can't get any further. But to get to the bottom of this squat or deadlift, I have to go into some spinal movement. Now I'm asking those erectors and I'm asking those abdominals to now become prime movers to move this thing out of the heaviest possible position. That's how someone's waist starts to grow. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I stay in a range of motion where my hip flexion is the primary movement, not spinal flexion, right? Now my my waist is going to grow significantly less. So I think someone's waist will grow in proportion to their ability to access that range. So if I, if I don't have great hip flexion, the tighter and tighter my hips go, and I still persist in doing these deep deadlifts and squats, my waist will grow because it has to, right? It has to grow to move this weight. Whereas if I stay in the range that I can actually access at just the hip joint and the spine can stay as just this anti-flexor, anti-extensor thing where it's not meant to be a prime mover, it's not going to hypertrophy. It's like it's like Jordan's example of the, of the soda can, the pop can, right? Mm-hmm. If you're standing on a pop can, it's not going to move. You push into it, it's going to it's going to cave in. And that's a very good way to look at it. As soon as I start to bend that, that spine a little bit, those muscles have to hypertrophy by definition to respond to that load whereas if they're just acting like that that um column almost where they're not becoming a prime mover it's not going to grow so does that make sense yeah yeah, yeah. That, is that, that is that sense. common knowledge amongst bodybuilders because i i know it definitely wasn't back in the day i remember seeing old videos of ronnie coleman where he literally wore a belt for everything his, his, for everything for his yeah. entire prep mm-hmm. because he thought it was gonna you know i guess help him use his his core less and it would actually, well, when you're squatting 800 pounds, like that's going to become a reality and you're not always going to be so meticulously in that active, what, you know, we'll call that an active range of motion. So if I have, have 90 degrees of hip flexion actively at my hip, anything below 90 degrees is going to incorporate my, my, my trunk. So if you're squatting 800 pounds, like Ronnie was consistently putting a belt on is probably going to be a good idea. But you know, if you wanted to just not build your waist, you just need to not go into that passive, what we'll call a passive range of motion. So, um, yeah, I think it was probably a good idea. It's just 
nobody's ever really explained the thought process as to when your waist will start to grow. And most bodybuilders and, and powerlifters too, powerlifters is a different thing, but bodybuilders are very attached to, oh, I got to go through this full range of motion. Right. Well, full range of motion for what? Right. And this is the thought process people don't think about. You guys do, but is it a full range of motion for the exercise, which is relevant to strength and powerlifting? Cause I need to go through a full squat bodybuilding. It's not about a full range of motion at an exercise. It's about a full range of motion at a joint, mm-hmm. right? Full range of motion at a joint, full range of motion at a muscle, which is again, two different things. So if we start looking at, well, what's the full range of motion for this muscle? Am I taking it through its full range of motion under resistance, under maximum load? That's what makes a muscle grow, not full range of motion at an exercise. Does that make sense? Yeah, so totally. when I'm looking at exercise, I'm looking at an internal reality. What's happening inside my body? Outside of my body is inconsequential to me, right? It's just, that's a, a vehicle of means of putting tension or resistance through a muscle. But really what I'm looking at is internally, like, is this joint, is this muscle going through its full excursion? And if it is, I'm doing it right. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about that. So we're initially started this conversation talking about the abdominal area, how it can grow based on the way that you're doing a movement. I loved, so I sat on your seminar and it's been one of my most favorite seminars in the fitness world. Um, you know, you just broke it down so easily and so beautifully. It was really easy to understand. And you you took some like complex topics that when you simplified it in the way that you did, it made me feel dumb for not having thought of it that way. Nobody does. Yeah. That's the thing is you just, you just take things for what you're told that they are. Mm -hmm. And rather than thinking about it and going, okay, is this actually the case? I'm just blessed that I've trained longer and harder than most people ever will. And having a bit of knowledge, just like you guys in powerlifting, the reason you guys get so great at powerlifting and getting results for other people is because you're in the trenches every day mm-hmm. and you're like, well, that did fucking work. Let's do this. Right. And then you kind of have this process of, of deductive reasoning and go, okay, well, th- why does this happen? And how can I explain this to people? And I'm blessed to be able to travel the world and teach. Mm-hmm. So I have to be able to explain it to people who one, maybe English isn't their first language Two, Maybe they don't understand exercise. Maybe they're just not an exercise professional. Mm-hmm. So I have to break it down to kind of bare bones and it allows me to think deeply. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. So where Thank I was you. going with this was, yeah, my question. Um, yeah. Okay. So let's talk about lagging body parts. Cause that was a part of the seminar that interests me a lot, just the way that you explained it. So I think you started by saying that it's not that you don't have the ability to grow a specific body part is that you're just not training the muscle that you think you're training. Mm-hmm. You're not performing it an exercise correctly. Yeah. So an example being, um, I was told as a young bodybuilder that if I wanted to grow a big back, what do you have to do? You have to do deadlifts, bent rows, pull-ups. That's pretty much it. Like your compounds, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the quote everybody throws. You got to do heavy compounds. So as I told you before we started, I was deadlifting 700 pounds, 750 for threes. I was doing 400 pound bent rows for reps. I was doing pull-ups and I had zero lats. And, but I had really bad joint pain. Like my elbow started to hurt. My shoulder started to hurt. I'm like, what the fuck am I doing wrong? I must just have bad genetics. That's what I was, that's what I was told. That's what I thought. That's just complete bullshit. I was just doing the wrong exercises, executed in the wrong ways. So from the outside, you would have said, wow, this guy's form is pretty good. It's controlled. It's slow. It's like, oh, that looks pretty good. But it wasn't mechanically efficient to challenge the muscle I was trying to challenge. So, you know, if you, we just talked about this. If you pick up a weight and I pick up a weight, you could do a row, say a one-arm dumbbell row. And by accident, your body just naturally does it that uses your lat because of the, the the shape of your torso, the rib cage, the length of the clavicle, the length of your, your levers, the origin insertion of the muscle, your body just may do it naturally and, and use that muscle really, really well. Whereas mine just happened to, to not, I could get into a squat and I could, my legs would grow. That's just, my, that was something my body mechanically did well. You look at a back exercise, my body just didn't fit well into the typical exercises. It doesn't mean that I can't build that muscle. It just means Based on what everyone else is doing, it doesn't suit me. So I have to go, I have to break it down, break it down to basic principles and go, okay, well, rather than looking at external tactics, which is like, you know, sets and reps and volume load and exercises, I have to look at principles and go, well, what is the principle that allows me to build this muscle? It's like, well, I need tension and I need length. I need to lengthen the muscle. I need to shorten the muscle. I need to maintain that tension over time. So then what are the things that maybe hold me back from maximizing tension over time? Well, set up execution, stability. So you're breaking it down into these core principles, right? So, you know, if you pick up a weight and instead of the simplest metaphor that I use sometimes is if I, if, if I invited you guys over to help me move my furniture, I'm moving house and I'm going to invite you guys over to move furniture. Let's say I invite my five friends and, and I've got to move the, the sofa and the fridge and, and, um, 
out of the washer and dryer. I'm probably going to pick the biggest friends to do that, right? Because because it's easiest for them. Your brain does the same thing. Your brain goes, hey, I got a big solution over here. I have a body part over here that can do this really easily. So I'm going to let that thing, I'm going to adjust my body into the position so that this big muscle group, which is really capable of doing this with the least energy expenditure, I'm going to shift my body into the type of position that allows that bo that body part to do it. Whereas this guy, this weak guy over here, I don't want him to do the work because he one, he's not capable of doing it by himself yet. But he, I don't want to predispose me to injury. It's going to be more likely to be energetically demanding. So I don't want to do that. I'm just going to make this really easy for myself. Whereas as a bodybuilder, you got to go, no, no, no. Like I want this muscle to grow, you know, pointing to whatever that muscle is. Mm -hmm. And I want this one to grow. So what do I have to do now to make that muscle the greatest solution? So instead of using all these other strong guys, I'm going to go, hey, weak guy, come over here. I need you to do the work. So what does it look like? And that for most people is a challenge because most people don't want to decrease the weight. They don't want to slow down. They don't want to feel. They want to mindlessly do was a big part of what I preach is like, stop doing, start thinking, start feeling, start, you know, being present in the body. And I turn into what is effectively a meditative experience where you're just so isolated. You're so locked in to this internal focus on this one, maybe two muscles. Yeah. I love that. What was it that you said? It's about making the exercise, uh, subjectively harder yeah. instead of objectively. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you're absolutely right. I think it's just kind of maybe been ingrained in our, in our thought, just culturally that you, in order to gain more muscle, you have to move more weight, you have to do more reps, you know, but you're right. Like if you're not targeting the muscle that you think you're targeting, then that muscle is not going to grow. I think it's ingrained because of young athletics, right? Like mm -hmm. when, you're an, when you're a young athlete, you're taught that if I score more goals, I win. You're taught that if I run faster, I win. You're taught if I lift heavier, I win. Whereas in muscle building is very different. It's not an external objective, right? Mm -hmm. It's an internal reality. Mm -hmm. So like most people are just so attached to, if I hit this target, I'm going to, I'm going to be rewarded somehow. Yeah. Whereas in, in bodybuilding, it just doesn't work that way. And, and the thing is, it, you know, maybe this explanation sounds complex to some people, but it's so unbelievably simple, right? So if you break it down to its core foundational necessity, what do we need to do? We need to understand that a muscle has two ends. And uh, in order to create tension in this muscle or maximize tension, I need one of those ends to stay absolutely stable. The more stable uh, stability I can create in one end of the muscle, the more tension I can generate with the other. So if you think of an elastic band, if I have an elastic band, I have one end that's anchored, completely anchored. The other end can pull and generate tension or elastic energy. Because if they're both moving, there's no tension being generated. So I need to create absolute stability at this, this you know, core, the, the proximal end of the body. So closer to my trunk and spine. And I'm going to create maximum tension at the other end of the muscle. I'm like, okay, well, how do I do that? And then apply resistance against that. It's really, it's so simple, but we mindlessly go about exercises. We mindlessly jump into a, a, you know, a squat or we mindlessly jump into a back exercise or a chest exercise and go, well, because I'm sitting in this machine, the machine says chest on it. That means I must be training my chest. Well, no, because you're built very differently than me. So an exercise that fits me very likely won't fit you. Mm -hmm. So learning very basic principles to go, okay, well, how do I adjust my body to fit this exercise or conversely choose an exercise that fits my body effectively? Mm -hmm. Can you, on the topic of stability for it, for muscle growth, can you explain the example about growing your pecs and the importance of- uh, That was the one for me that really- Yeah, 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 me too. Made I love it all one. make sense and made me feel dumb for not- thinking that way to begin with what, what exactly it was the role of stability i think scapular stability scapula, to, yeah, to sure. grow the pecs sure so um a really good visual example for anybody sitting home listening is, is think of the pec as an elastic band and one end is anchored at your sternum. So like the middle of your chest and the other one kind of pulls around and anchors back on your humerus. So the, the, the upper arm. So if I can create an elastic, uh, reality, an elastic stretch in that muscle. I'm creating more kinetic energy. So I'm creating more potential to pull. So think about pulling the elastic band, not taking your upper arm back away from your, uh, away from your midline of your body. So that's creating this elastic energy. Now, in order for me to maintain that elastic energy, it's dependent on stability at my back, right? So if I'm trying to generate force with my pack, I need to create contraction and tension. It's completely dependent on stability at my scapula. So if I lose stability at the scapula and the scapula starts to, to allow, uh, as rolls forward almost, it, it goes into protraction. Think of what's happening at that elastic band in the front. So I want to create really that great stretch in the elastic band, the great kinetic uh, potential energy. I need that 
pec to be stretched back. Well, that's dependent on my ability to contract the mid traps, the mid traps and the rhomboids to pull my shoulder blades toward the spine. Mm -hmm. So if I can't maintain that retraction, that pulled back toward the spine, I can't maintain or can't create that full kinetic energy at the pec. Mm -hmm. That's the simplest way to look at it. So people always come into my gym and say, Hey Ben, I want to, I'm training chest today. Can you tell me a great chest exercise? What's my answer? It depends. Well, no, yes, but it's also, it's go train your back. It's often the best chest exercise for people who have a weak chest is a good back exercise because I need you to learn how to contract the back, right? To contract the, the, the mid traps, the lower traps, the rhomboids. And I mean, everyone who has weak pecs, almost certainly across the board is going to have one of, of two limitations. They're probably going to be in a thoracically flexed position. You know this as a powerlifter. Like people start to come into this rounded thoracic spine. If that happens, your pecs won't grow because your shoulders are all up and forward. Um, and other one being obviously the ability to retract and depress your scapula. If you can't do that, the likelihood of building your pec is slim and none. So rather than beating your head against a wall and, and going and lifting harder and heavier, like everyone will tell you, do more compounds. Well, don't do any of that shit. Don't train your chest at all. Fix your back. And guess what happens to your chest? It grows, right? Just by deductive reasoning. If we improve the ability to contract the back, to stabilize the scapula, the pecs grow. What's uh, what's another lagging body part that, yeah, from your experience, you've seen a lot of people struggle with? Well, everything. Like, you know, everyone comes to me for, for really anything. And, and it always comes down to this core set of principles. It's so much easier than we think. And if you can't build a muscle, I can tell you with hundred percent certainty, you're lacking stability at the proximal end. So I have, you know, you call what your, your three hubs of stability, right? You have your, your scapula, so your shoulder girdle, your trunk and spine and your pelvis. So those are what we call the three hubs of stability. So if you just envision a body with the arms and legs removed, that is your kind of your hub of stability. So if you're having hard time building your biceps or triceps, it's always 100% of the time going to, well, barring any other injury, it's going to be dependent on your ability to build that muscle is going to be dependent on your ability to stabilize the scapula. Mm -hmm. So if you can't stabilize the scapula for whatever reason, you're not building that muscle. Uh, the lats again becomes a little bit complex. And I think this is one game changing tip that uh, if anyone has a hard time building their lats, this will absolutely change the game protraction, loaded protraction. So if you think of the lat as a um, kind of antagonist to the pec, right? So the pec, if we want to load it, we want to pull it back and we want to lengthen it. What's well, the exact opposite for the lat? So if I want to take the lat into its fully lengthened position, it's actually this protracted reality to create um, a lengthened lat. And what is that dependent on? It's dependent on our serratus, which is kind of like the, the shark tooth muscle that wraps around your rib cage. Um, so I need to go into protraction, maintain protraction while I, ex I extend the arm. So extending the arm, kind of like moving my arm down and back. Mm -hmm. And I think people mess that up because most people, and I was taught this for years, like, hey, if you want to build your back, move the shoulder blade back first and then finish the row. And that ends up being a trap and the rear delt and tricep exercise, right? Rather than a lat exercise. So we have to keep that length in the lat um, by protracting as long as we possibly can through a back exercise. And that whether or not it's coming from a pull down or a row, it still has to be this protracted reality to, to maintain that elastic mm -hmm. kinetic energy. People struggle a lot with that. Like, I think they- It's hard. It, no, and people who go to the gym a lot, they're almost, their shoulder blades are almost stuck. It's hard for them to be able to move it freely, like as if they just never do it. Mm -hmm. I, I think you're right in that a lot of these issues stem from just how we're introduced to everything when we're young. Mm -hmm. Because even just what we were talking about, you know, it's it's so hard to track a lot of the things that, you know, origin and insertion point and growing very particular hypertrophying very particular muscle groups. But when you're a kid, it's so easy to track, like, did my deadlift go up or yeah. did my bench go up? Yeah. And that's, you know, a lot of the coaches, especially in high school and especially in Canada, where there's not as much of an emphasis on uh, strength and conditioning for, for for sports and high school sports. The, the coaches probably don't know any they of that don't. stuff There's either. No so it's and man, even at the highest level of the fitness industry right now, and people don't know this stuff, right? Which is why my business is doing well because I, I really say, I really say I kind of stick my thin end of the wedge into into the system right at the beginning, right? So, our sets and reps and volume and load important, of course but only if you're doing them well. So my my part of the business is only if you're doing it well, right? That's that's where I fit. I mean, like and I'm not I'm not spending tremendous amounts of time trying to sell people on programs and like here's a great set rep scheme for you and sets and like great, that's awesome. But until you can do it well, 
all that shit doesn't matter. So let's just spend a little bit of time on this. And that's the missing piece. It's the skill acquisition, right? And the metaphor I always use is if you're learning to play the piano, you don't just pick up Mozart or Beethoven or whatever the hell and start playing, right? You got to learn how to play one instrument at a time and, or sorry, one, um, note. one note at a time. And you're playing with one finger and then two fingers and then progressing it that way. And that's the piece. Like nobody would ever pick up a, a piece of music and go, assume they can just go in and go, go faster, play more often, go harder and a figure and, and assume you're going to figure it out. It doesn't work. You know, maybe some person miraculously would by accident figure it out, which is effectively the fitness industry, right? They by accident figure this out. Right. Whereas if we could just kind of break it down to core principles and go, Hey, if you learn to play this note and then eventually you can learn to play this note, eventually you can play all of these things. Right. And that's, that's effectively where I kind of fit into the fitness industry. Okay. And, and you said it's, it's, um, it's complex. It's actually so not like, you know, I understand as a kid, you're not taught origin insertion, but if you just look, like, I think that the beauty of the training in the 1970s, where these guys wear these string tank tops and the short shorts, they didn't know what this stuff, but they were figuring it out. And the way they figured it out is looking and go, Hey, when I do this, this looks like it really contracts. So this feels like it really contracts. So our fitness industry is very disconnected from their body. We wear hoodies and we put our headphones on, we pull our hat over our eyes. So we don't ever connect with what's going on. We're very just like trying to turn off our brain, right? We're trying mm -hmm. to disconnect from our body and just punish it. Whereas if we did the opposite and we started just looking and feeling and paying attention, I think people's bodies would exponentially change. So it's a, it's a, it's a huge disconnect that's just kind of being perpetuated in the industry by the high level body, which you always want to cover up. And I get it because when you're that big, you don't want everyone's attention because everyone wants to look and feel and make comments and, and <laughs> right? So you, I get it at the highest level why you cover up, but as a beginner, as a foundational person, you should be spending as much time as you can with your shirt off, posing, feeling, looking, and starting to learn your body and go, okay, when I do this, it looks like that kind of contracts. Well, how do I put resistance against that to make that more challenging? So it's, it's this intuitive thing that we should all have and being connected with our body, but we're just disconnected. Well, that's actually, like just as an aside, that's interesting. I didn't know that high-level bodybuilders often covered up to not be a spectacle in the gym. Dude, well, well, think about... Now think about your think about a celebrity. Like let's say you're Arnold Schwarzenegger. Say, it's like the gym paparazzi for you guys. Right. Well, think about <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger you're walking down the road and everyone goes, Arnold's an asshole. I go, dude, do you think if every human being in the world wanted your time and attention, you would somewhat sometime just want to be fucking left alone? Yes. Well, think about that's what a bodybuilder is all the time because you can't put it away, right? If you're if you're a celebrity, you can throw a hat and glasses on. Maybe you'll slide by and people won't notice. As a bodybuilder, if you're you're huge, you, <laughs> you put a fucking sweatshirt and, and pants on, people still go, "Oh my god!" And they have a comment or they have a cut eye or there's something to say. So at some point, you just want to turn it off, right? Yeah. And at some point, just like just fucking and it's the same stupid questions over and over. It's like, "Hey man, I'm on your bench. Hey man, you take juice. <laughs> like, like fuck off, right? Yeah, or they tell you they're what they used to lift, right? Or my, in my day. Right. <laughs> totally. I, I used to, be I used to look you. like you. Yeah. <laughs> no, you yeah. didn't. Yeah. So you just don't want to talk to everybody, man. And so at some point you're just like, what can I do to make this all just go away? As much as you spend your whole life trying to attain it, it's just like, fuck, I just want to be left alone sometimes. And that's really why I built this gym, man. It's like, it was just taking three hours to get workouts done. That should take 45 minutes. Cause ever, and, and I, I, I like helping people, but at the same time I had a job. Like I had to get to the Olympia stage. I had to be my best. And, and if I go to the gym, it takes three hours. It should take 45 minutes. It's a big problem. So you guys are so funny, especially guys. You're like, you want all the other guys to notice your gains at the beginning. So you wear really tight shirts <laughs> or like stringers or no shirt. And then when you get too big, you're like, no, fuck that. I don't want anyone looking at me. Yeah, Cause you're also being judged. I talk about that all the time on my podcast. It's like at my biggest, I, you know, when I was walking on stage at the 212, uh, in, uh, 2012 Olympia, um, I was probably my most insecure because you just know that everyone is judging you. And, and, and like you, you're, you know, they look at the top bodybuilder would look at Mr. Olympia. And what does everybody say? Uh, he's got weak legs. He's fucking Mr. Olympia. He's the greatest <laughs> bodybuilder on the planet. And you're going to pick that one thing that uh, rather than going, wow, what a beautiful physique. He's so yeah. lean. It's beautiful back, beautiful abdominals. Everyone's like, ah, fuck his calves are small. <laughs> and that's just the way our, our world is. Right. And, and you know, that's what people are looking at. So you're walking up on stage or you're taking, you're in the gym and people are going, eh, I don't think he's ready yet. You're like he's fucking 4% body. Eh, he's kind of fat. Like, you know, like, right. And that, that's what, you, that's the reality you're facing is one of these high level bodybuilders. So I, I, when I was walking on stage, there was points where I was probably the most insecure I ever was. And I realized that it wasn't this great fulfilling thing that I thought it was going to be to walk on stage at the Olympia. It was like, okay, well, nothing outside of myself, no amount of external gratification is going to fulfill me. I need to create that internal confidence and fulfillment from inside of me. This external journey is is completely superficial. And, uh, and that's kind of a moving target that you're just chasing forever anyway, too, right? Yeah. Well, you can't attain it. Yeah, it's impossible. You know, like if I can be on stage at the Olympia and be one of the top 10 bodybuilders in the world and still not feel 
supremely confident. Well, it's, it's obviously a hollow thing, right? I think it's the, the people, like, I don't try to dissuade people from bodybuilding. I think you just have to look at it, taking your motivation from a different place. The greatest benefit you achieve, achieve from bodybuilding, just like in, in making money, right? So one of my greatest mentors said, um, never set the goal to, to make a million dollars for the money, set the goal for the person it, it makes of you to achieve it. Mm-hmm. Same thing in bodybuilding. So if I want to become Mr. Olympia, it's not because of the muscle. It's not because of the title. It's because of all the discipline and the character and, and the challenge that it, it makes of you to attain that. And that's what I really received from bodybuilding. Whereas most people are just attached to the vanity and the external sure. accolades and the, the, the recognition. Well, you see it in powerlifting too. Powerlifting and bodybuilding. I feel like in, in bodybuilding, a lot of people, they I think they think, well, once I get my pro card, then I'll worry about business and I'll worry about all this stuff. And like, that's Nonsense. the ticket to- yeah to feeling good and, and to success. And people think about it the same way in, in powerlifting where, you know, they're doing no sort of development outside of the sport and they're like, Oh, you know what? I'll just break this world record or I'll hit this total. And then that's where everything's going to change for me. And it, I think yeah, it's people are going to come knocking on my door and like, no, they're not, man, yeah. nothing changes. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause now, now instead of being the top of the amateurs, now you're the bottom of the <laughs> pros. So now you're competing against everybody else. And now you're just a shitty pro. I tell people all the time, man, like until you're ready to, to, to compete at a high level as a pro, don't dream to go pro. Like don't, it's not, nothing's going to change unless you're ready to be top three at a show. Don't just stay where you are. Like keep making progress, making progress. And again, it's, it's not about the, the, the external reward, man. It's not just never will be. What was your best placement? You second, second at the Arnold. Yeah. Yeah. And how did you feel? Uh, like shit, but that's a different story. <laughs> I was very sick. I was very sick for, um, 36 hours, 24 to 36 hours before the contest. So physically I felt like shit. Um, you know, to be honest, probably the most, um, let down I'd ever been in myself. You're kidding me. No. And I'll tell you why I was disappointed that I got second. I would have been even more disappointed had I won and people like you're out of your mind. Why? Cause it was the worst prep I'd ever had. And I knew in my mind that I was reinforcing bullshit behaviors. I got sick. I almost pulled out like my, my training was shit. And I was like, God, if I got rewarded from all of those activities that have led into me being in this contest, it's just going to hurt my progress. Like it would have been better if I got slapped and like got put in 10th, it would have crushed my soul and crushed my ego, but I would have worked my dick off the next year to come back and work harder. Whereas at that point in my life, like I got second and I was like, man, that was the worst prep I ever had. Like, and that sounds messed up, but my diet was crappy. I got sick at nine weeks out. I'm like, so many things happen in my, my I had, my son was about a year old. My, my daughter was just, just before she was born. And there's just a whole bunch of things happening in my life where I'm like, I just didn't deserve second place for this contest. I'm so grateful that I got it, but like, this wasn't a great prep. Like, yeah. did, did you know that? Did you think that at the time or is this? Oh retrospect? yeah. No, going into it. I was, I was like, so I was in the best shape of my life. No question. Like, so the Thursday night before the, before the Friday contest, my coach at the time came into the room and he goes, dude, you're unbeatable. Like nobody's going to touch you. Like he, he's like, I know he's competing in the show. Nobody's going to touch you. And I don't know if it was my fear or my stress, but I, within, I don't know, 12 hours of that, I was vomiting. I was, had diarrhea. So I had like food poisoning. So I wonder if that was, so what, you know, I had food, summer started to swap. So every 45 minutes on the minute I was, I was vomiting and, and, and you know, diarrhea and I didn't eat for at least 24 hours going to the show. And I almost didn't go on stage, long story. Um, but I knew at that point, like, man, uh, on Thursday night, if you would ask me, I, I, I have pictures, like I was inside out shredded, never been so shredded in my life. My waist was small. I was relatively full. I um, mean, the coach wanted to push the, push the food a little bit and the food just sat in my stomach, just wouldn't go anywhere. And all of a sudden it starts coming out. So it was a, it was a, interesting year, man. But listen, I'm so grateful for it because it absolutely changed my life and it made me realize what I'm capable of. It also made me realize that that level of placement doesn't change the person I am. It doesn't make me a better person. Ben, how many, how many years did you compete for? Professionally or total? Total. Um, 15, uh, no, uh, 12. 12. 12. Like, can I, cause I also want to talk about business, but before we go there, since we're in the, like on the topic of you as an athlete, I love asking the question about mindset, kind of how you personally managed to stick with things for 12 years. You know, I I know how hard it is, like after it becomes mundane, after you start, you know, making progress too fast. What was kind of your internal dialogue to like stick with things? Well, it's interesting because I think about that a lot because I I get to uh, mentor a lot of young bodybuilders and I I speak to them just similar to what Hidden I was speaking about. Um, 
don't be in a rush to get your pro card. Here's why. When you're young and you're uh, ascending the ranks, your internal motivation is at its highest. So you get to train when you want. You're really excited to go to the gym. You're really excited to compete. You love what you do. As soon as you are starting to be paid, now the, the motivation becomes extrinsic. And the extrinsic motivation is waning, right? So if someone wants you to compete, they tell you when to compete. If they want you to be in shape, they tell you when to be in shape. And now it's like, oh, I have to do this for somebody else and not myself. And that's a big shift. So early in my career, I loved it. Like I just wanted to train every day. I wanted to, I wanted to work harder than everybody. I wanted to be known. Like one of my greatest accomplishments in life um, was when I first went to Gold's Venice, I was 21 years old. And I said, well, the next time I come back here, every person in this gym is going to know me as, as the hardest working guy in the gym. That was my goal. And you know, luckily, I, I was very blessed to go back and, and get my pro card and train with Charles Glass for a long time. And everyone in that gym at the time knew like nobody would touch me. And that was my like badge of honor. And that's what I aspired to. And uh, and then when you go there and you, you start making money and you're getting less recognition, the, the gratification turns to this external thing. And that definitely shifted. And now it's like, well, I have to make money. I have to do this. I have to do this. Um, so that's when things start to become challenging for me. Um, it was definitely a different mental struggle. And it was now I was looking for motivation in places. I was asking myself, why are you doing this? What is the purpose? So now the motivation comes at like, oh, I want to beat Kai Green or I want to beat Ramy or I want to beat Dexter. And that was the motivation. And that sucked. Like, cause now you're comparing yourself against other people rather than just being against your best self. And that was a big mistake. And I didn't have anyone to mentor me at the time to say, hey man, who cares? Just be your best today. There's only one thing in the world you can control, and that's this exact moment. Are you giving your all? Are you giving 100%? And if I had had uh, an, an opportunity to speak with somebody to teach me that, I think it would have been maybe the greatest advice I could have got. Yeah. Was, do you think that was part of uh, what led you to retire? Or was there another reason? I'm, yeah, I'm always curious a lot about of reasons. this. Because whenever someone, especially when they're in, in great competition shape and it looks like everything's going well, I always wonder, you know, you you obviously strike me as someone who's very healthy and you speak a lot about health and, mm -hmm. and it's, I think, a lot of probably your training motivation now. But that's not the case, I think, for a lot of bodybuilders who yeah. come out of the sport with a slew of health problems. Yeah. Was there something, you know, was it was part of your retirement health motivated or did you do yeah. something specifically to to make sure you came out of the sport, you know, unscathed sure. and, or was it all just what you were talking about before? Well, no, there was many things, right? It wasn't just one thing. And, and I was very blessed to uh, learn early a lot of things. So when I got my pro card, I was 26 and I told myself by the time I'm 30, I'm going to be in the top 10 of the Olympia. And then I'm going to give myself five years to what I called push, which means like whatever it takes, you're going to become Mr. Olympia. And so I figure you got about a five-year shelf life of like aggressively pushing your body with whatever it takes to become Mr. Olympia. And then I was going to retire. So I set this target of retiring by the time I was 35. And I think I was on track. So I was 30 in, in 2011. And I was at the time, probably the biggest bodybuilder in the world. Remy hadn't come on the scene yet. One of the biggest anyways, like Kai was obviously big, but I was like 282, 283 on stage, which is, and, and you look at pictures of me beside other guys and I was big. So I was like, okay, I'm right in the right place. Now it's just a adding some muscle here and there and refining and maybe making your waist smaller. Um, so I was in the right place and then I had my children. So um, God blessed me with two amazing, wonderful, incredible little humans that shifted my motivation from being completely selfish to now realizing there's things that are more important. That was the first thing. Mm -hmm. Second thing was I had this timeline in place where I was like, okay, well, I did say I was going to retire by 35. So my, when I had my kids, I didn't have the same anger, the internal like I wasn't pissed off at the world. I didn't have that chip on my shoulder. I had nothing, nothing else to prove. I didn't have that purpose, right? Because I was like, God, this is so much more important than me being this selfish prick and training five hours a day. Like if I get to spend an hour with them, I'll do that rather than go to the gym. So there was that. There was myself giving me this five-year timeline, which I didn't end up really pushing. Like I didn't, because re I realized, you know, I didn't want to be that person. I didn't want to be selfish and, and give 100% focus to myself. Um, there was that. And there, there was just this reality where I, I felt like the, the whole sport was kind of shifting. Um, I just, just didn't have the same purpose anymore, man. So their health was in the back of my mind. Um, being a better dad, being an amazing dad was, was in, in the front of my mind. And then this reality that I had my business that was growing. So my business started as a result of my children. Like when you're, when you're dependent on, on other people paying your salary, you just kind of, you kind of feel like you're at their disposal. So as soon as my, my girlfriend at the time, um, now wife got pregnant, uh, I was like, okay, well I need to, I need to man up. I need to get, create a business and to create an income. So that started. So I had all these things that were kind of adding up to me being like, you know what? I just don't need this anymore. And I just didn't, I just didn't need it. 
Like I enjoyed it. I loved it. I still love the challenge. I just didn't need it. Yeah. I feel like to do anything at that level, you kind of have to need All it. You kind of have to have that chip on your shoulder. Yeah. All in. It's uh, with anything, any sort of sport or. Yeah. We, we talk about that a lot, eh? How we feel so different in that sense. Like you're saying, when I first started doing weightlifting, I would dream about weightlifting. I would like mm-hmm. replay the movements all over, uh, over and over again in the car, on the way to I the gym. I wake myself like- up in, I, I would wake myself up by accidentally punching my headboard because when I was sleeping, I would <laughs> think about doing a snatch. snatch. No, no joke. It happened yeah, all the time. Yeah. And I nail my hand and be like, Oh Damn. That's so funny. Yeah, just because I was so into it, like yeah. so into it in such a pure way. Yeah. You know, yeah. I that, miss that. I miss that. That yeah. kind of internal fire too. Mm-hmm. I'm at that stage where it's like, for me, it's shifted a lot too. I, you know, I went from doing it because I love it to now doing it because I have to. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's a it's a huge struggle. Yeah, that's that's the irony of it, right? It's yeah. like, and then that makes you respect people who stay on top that long. As you, as that question you asked, like, Absolutely. how the hell did Ronnie Coleman wait? Olympias in a row and keep that motivation, keep getting better and better and better. I think it's just because that at that point, it's so ingrained into your, into your psyche. This is who you are. Yeah. And he, you know, the, his greatest blessing was that he didn't think about it. He just did it. Yeah. And I think that was kind of the irony of, of my reality. It's like the better I got at it, the more I thought about it, the more I thought about getting better and perfecting it. I started to realize like, oh man, I'm kind of hurting myself. Like I'm kind of doing shit wrong. I'm kind of getting it sick. Luckily I got out of bodybuilding with 100% health. No, so far, no, um, known effects, you know, kidney health is great. Liver health is great. Heart health is great. So, um, I'm very blessed for that, but you can't say it like you look at Coleman, right. And not to shoot the guy down, but like he's, he's beat up and you kind of accept that, right. You, you, at some point, you know, that's going to happen. And that's why you just, uh, for me, I'm like, you know, everything I do, I kind of give myself this governor. I'm like, I got this amount of time. You push hard. And luckily I step, I stuck with that timeline. Yeah. I feel like a lot of people convince themselves that they're okay with that too, before it happens. You know, it feels like it's such a far down the road thing. And then when you're faced with the reality of it, I think a lot of people have regret whether they admit it or not. Right. I, I always make the kind of crude comment before 30, you train with your balls and after 30, you train with your brains. And like, <laughs> yeah. cause you know, literally before 30, you're kind of like, Oh, I could do anything. I'm invincible. And a sudden at some point, 30 is just a subjective number. At some point you become aware of your own mortality. It was 25 for me. Yeah. At some point. <laughs> I've been right? 30 since I was 25. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe it's, maybe it's different. Like you achieve so much at so young, such a young age. Right. Yeah. And maybe it's this reality. Like you achieve something and you're like, man, I, I got to, I don't want to live like this for, I don't want to go down that path. You can kind of see it opening up in front of you. Right. Yeah. yeah. So 12 years competing, how long ago did you start your business and what do you do? 2011. So, um, 2011, I had a friend of mine from university reach out and, and go, man, I just watched your DVD and you have something really special that you do. And I'd love to have you coach me. Your DVD, what DVD? I had a, that caught me, my uh, yeah. attention too. Yeah. So I, throughout my career, I produced three, DVDs. So the first one was just basically like my prep for the New York pro in 2010. Um, and then 2012, I did my prep for the Olympia, which was a little bit different, less focused on training, like almost zero training and more focused on just kind of like my, my mindset and my life. And then I did in 2014 or 15, I did the Arnold classic prep. I think it was 2014. Cause I just come off the second place, um, in 2013, 2002. So I was coming back expecting to win. So I, I, um, came into that contest and, and filmed my entire prep and I had an amazing, amazing film creator, uh, make those filmmaker. He was f- so incredible. Well, like, you could find those in blockbuster or what? Yes. They went down with the ship. Uh, no, no. Uh, so you can find them online. I've got, actually got some in here. I'll give you guys, if you want to check them out. Yeah, for you. sure. Um, but yeah, so you can find them on, online. So um, their first one was called All About the Benjamins, which was my 2010. I didn't come up with that name. Uh, 2012 was the debut. And that one was, uh, I'm probably most proud of that one. He did, he did a fantastic job. And then he did Defined in um, 2014. And uh, they're, they're awesome. Like I'm so proud of, and not of my job, to be honest, because I was a complete a-hole during it. I was like, man, I just want to be left alone. Don't film me. <laughs> so the limited amount he filmed, he did an incredible job with the the production of it, the post-production. So, um, yeah, I don't know what worked. Oh yeah. Here, yeah. So, um, so I started, so a friend of mine from university reached out and goes, man, I'd love to have you prepare me for a contest. He's getting ready for the WBFF, uh, I guess his pro card, like trying to get his pro card. So I said, okay. So I prepared him and he goes, man, nobody teaches this like you do. Like, why don't you teach this? I said, I don't know, man. Like, it's just what I do. 
So he had an online business at the time and he's like, man, I'd love to have you come and partner with me in this. You teach the world and we'll become partners on it. So I was like, okay. So I wrote a 220 page ebook and then I filmed 30 hours of videos. We put it out um, and ended up, I think we made $250,000 in the first five days. And I was like, okay, well, clearly there's, and that was no marketing really, right? That was just organic. Like people like saying, wow, this is amazing. Like, um, so you know, like, and okay. it was the ebook with the 30 hours video. So yeah. it was already, it was kind of like passive income. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and this was what year? 2011. Damn. Yeah. Pioneer. Yeah. I was the OG. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, um, did really, really well and just passive income for the first 12 to 18 months. And then everyone goes, you know, you do one, it's a 40 day program. It was called MI40. And I was, everyone's like, oh, what do we do now? So I was like, I'm going to come up with another one. So I tried to come up with a different name. And one of my friends at the time goes, dude, like, no, that's your brand. Like you need to, you need to run with that. And I was like, okay. So I come up with MI40 Extreme, which was 2014 and crushed it with that. Like that one, I actually put some money into it and invested in some, some help, some online help. And again, like $700,000, five days, like crushed it. And like, not, don't say that to brag, but like just what, that what's possible online was now revealed to me. Like, how do you make that amount of money? Which I'd probably never made in my life to that point. 2011, where did people find you? Facebook, MySpace, what was it? <laughs> Steph was like, I was like eight. <laughs> um, no, um, Craigslist. <laughs> yeah, definitely Facebook, um, Twitter. I think Facebook and Twitter was about it. Facebook was the big one. Yeah. Not, no, not my space. <laughs> um, yes. So yeah, Facebook, um, I guess that's really it. Email. Um, we, we developed a great email list. Um, and honestly, it was just like sending out organic emails two or three times a week and just like, Hey guys, this is what I'm doing. Here's my workout from today. If you enjoy this, you want to buy more go and, and buy this program. And we just started to grow. So by 2014, we did MI40X and I had that university studied, which was a unique mechanism. So um, I did a lot of research at the time and I found hyperplasia, which is Dr. Jose Antonio's work on um, quails. And I was like, this is fucking cool. So I tried it for 40 days myself and my body completely changed. If no one's ever done intra set stretching, it's incredible, incredibly effective. Um, so basically, you know, you'll do, you'll do a set with a certain number of reps, uh, a certain weight, and you just wait at the bottom or the lengthened position and you stretch for, you know, what I was doing, 20 to 40 seconds, depending on the exercise. Um, with I, the weight? With the weight. Okay. Yep. And then you actually, so the way I did it, ended up doing it was I, I would do that loaded stretch for 30 to 40 seconds, drop the weight, keep going, do it again. So we'd repeat it. Um, and the results were just incredible. So I had it studied in a How lab. can I do it for my butt? I'll show you today. <laughs> At the bottom of hip thrust? thrust? I'll show, no, it has to be loaded. So you would, so I, I used to do deadlifts. You could do it at the bottom of a, of a stiff like deadlift, but your lower back will typically be the bottleneck. So glutes is probably a challenge. I'll, we'll work on glutes today okay. after Excellent. the workout. We'll That's all that. I care about. No problem. How do I atrophy Hayden mine? Too, huh? Yeah. How you atrophy yours? Yeah, yeah. You, we you can need do to that do that. <laughs> um, so I had a university, I believed in it. So I'm like, I'm like, you know, I'm very close to the University of Tampa. I went to the guys at the lab, University of Tampa. I said, can we study this? So 40 days, we brought in a group of, I think it was about 20. And we had some people just doing their own workout, some people doing my workout. And we ended up getting about 16 pounds average weight gain in 40 days. And everyone said, this is not even possible. And so we didn't put a huge number of restrictions on their diet and like that. And like everyone was natural. There was no in hands. Was it trained or untrained? Everyone was trained. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yep. So we ended up having about 16 pounds of weight gain and a fat loss average over 40 days. So I have this, you know, white paper. We posted an, an article or we posted on the sales page. So we, we crushed it. We did really well with that. And then from there, um, just like realizing the scope of what's possible and how many people, and, and literally I did no marketing other than those launches, which were five day launches. I did no marketing, like no ads, you know, email marketing and that was it. So just, and then to hear of these people making so much money who knew nothing about fitness, I was like, well, I need to take this, this information to the world. And I was just blessed to, at that point, be able to, to teach and learn and love it and, and travel. And that's kind of how it evolved. So, and before that became a business, what were you doing for? I was, as a, a, I was a meathead, but so on my business professional card, meathead. I was on my business card said <laughs> meathead, um, <laughs> the head of meat. You know, I was, um, I was just a bodybuilder. So I was getting paid to, to endorse products. So I was very blessed, you know, 
early in my career to have people approach me and say, Hey man, you have great potential. Would you like to be, you know, like to endorse our product? And sure. Like if it was a great product, I did. I was very blessed to have some decent contracts. But the one thing that happened to me in 2009, um, I had, I was making eight grand a month, which for a young aspiring bodybuilder, any bodybuilder, to be honest, pretty good. And uh, I was all excited about this. I'm like, God, I'm making a hundred grand a year. This is awesome. And after four months, maybe four or five months, they called me up one day and say, Hey Ben, there's no more money. Unfortunately, we can't pay your salary. So I was like, well, what do you mean? We have a contract. They're like, yeah, well, the company's going out of business. There's nothing we can do. So, um, it just ha- it gave me this awareness of this reality that at any point the carpet can be pulled from under your feet. So as soon as my girlfriend at the time, now I'm pregnant, I was like, well, I can't be dependent on contracts. Even the contracts were good. I needed to have something that was dependent on me. Cause you know, within bodybuilding, you're only as good as your last placing, right? If you mm-hmm. place poorly, now I'll say, oh, he's, he's squares over, he's done. And I was like, okay, well that can't happen. So I just started the business. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's incredible. So how did you, did you scale that? So how did, how did yeah. you grow that? So Give and, me kind of like yeah, a rundown how, of, of how that evolved. And where's where it's at today. Yeah. Sure. Interested in that. Um, so the blessing and curse of making too much money too easily was you don't really know how you did it and you don't really know how to scale it. It's nice to hear someone say that because most mm-hmm. people pretend or maybe they've can convinced themselves that it was some sort of secret that they... Oh, man. Honestly, yeah. I just put up really good information. I did it in an altruistic way that actually gave a shit about people. Like everyone that comes into my world, this is the blessing and curse of my life is I actually care about people and I actually want to help them. So the, the blessing of that is people know that and they feel it. And the curse of that is I give people way too much time and attention, way more than I should or I can, right? Because as you know, as you, as you evolve in business, your time is extremely valuable. Um, so I spend time on people, even now, like in my Facebook community, I'm in there doing things that probably aren't the best use of my time, but I actually want to get people results. And that that's something I'm attached to at, at the level of my heart. Like if I can help you and I, and you can change and I can change your life, then that's, that's more than enough for me. Right. My believe money will come and, and, and it does, you know? Um, so scale, how did I scale? What I, I did, my only means of scaling was like, okay, I'm going to acquire more leads and I'm going to sell them these two products. And eventually I did a, a nutrition product. Eventually I did a, you know, a continuity membership. Um, so just looking for different ways to, uh, acquire more leads and send them into this funnel, which is ultimately send them down the path of MI40 foundation, which is the first one MI40 extreme. And I've got something which is a cyclical bulking program, like a lean bulk. And then I've got this mastery program. And that was kind of what I did for the first five or six years. And I, I didn't honestly know anything other than cast a wider net, cast a wider net. How do I get in front of new people? I didn't understand the the intricacies of customer retention, of adding more value, of lifetime value, of referrals, like building a community. I just wanted to make it bigger because that, because that's all I heard. I was like, Hey, if I get, you know, I have a hundred thousand people on my email list. If I get a million people on my email list, that's more money. And it is. But I also didn't realize that a hundred thousand people on my email list, if you actually service them correctly is retirement money. And yeah. I didn't get it. I just was like, I just get more people instead of taking really good care of the ones I had. And that's a, a good lesson for people who have a business is, I mean, you don't need more people. You just need to do a better job with the ones you have, provide them more value. An example being this gym. So if we charge people 250 a month just to be members here, you know, we could go, okay, well, we have a hundred members. We could scale to a thousand members. Like, yes, we could do that. Or we could go, okay, what could we provide as far as additional value to these hundred people? So now instead of paying 250 a month, they're paying 750 a month or 500 a month to get nutrition and supplements and coaching and, you know, it's like you guys do with your, your system already. And that's a big uh, oversight that a lot of young businesses um, disregard. It's like, mm-hmm. take better care of the people coming into your world. And you can quantify this is like, you know, what percentage of my revenue comes from new customers, what comes from current customers, what comes from retentions and referrals. And you should pay close attention to that. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's something that we started recently implementing and recently as of like maybe a year and a half ago, it's, you know, gathering better data to understand our customers' needs and who we're talking to, and then paying more attention to our client retention, because I think it's easier to keep people in and keep people happy than it is to bring more people in. And if you're- In the long run, definitely. Yeah. And if you're already- you know, if, if it's already easy for you to bring people in, then that's not something that you need to be working hard towards. Right. Yeah. That's just 
working and then you need to work on what's not working so well. So how can you keep them in the program for longer? Well, people who are already in, they already know you. They mm -hmm. already like you. They already trust you. They bought something from you. Like they've, you've already gone through that hard process, right? The hardest thing in business is no like trust, right? How, so now you have to walk someone through kind of your nurturing sequence when they come in, like, who's this girl? Like, she's pretty cool. She's pretty, you know, fit. She's pretty strong, but who is she? Do I align with her values? So you have mm -hmm. to teach them that, right? You're doing a great job with the podcast with your amazing social media, but that's still a process, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas people who are in, they already love you. It's now it's just a matter of like, Hey, I just want you to know I actually care about you. That's mm -hmm. it. What, um, so obviously you didn't know that there was a potential to make that much money when you started doing your, your, your ebook and your videos and your DVDs. Like you had no idea that that would grow to the, to the size that it did. What kind of systems and processes did you implement along the way to sustain that level of, of success and to continue moving it forward? Cause that's something that happened to us when we first started hybrid, it started organically kind of the same way that it did for you you know there was a need and the need became apparent like people voiced it and then we pretty much it turned out to be a much larger need than we thought yeah but also. we provided uh, a service or a solution to the need that already existed which made the business grow organically really fast similar to you and our biggest struggle was okay like obviously there's you know there's a huge potential for a business here but we need to learn how to scale it we need to learn how to um Uh, have the systems and processes that are required in order to sustain that kind of organizational structure mm -hmm. in order to continue growing. Mm -hmm. So what were some of the things that you did well, throughout the so years? Being fully transparent, in 2016, I decided it was going to be my last year of competing and I, I wanted to do, I wanted to kind of leave it all on the table. So I really kind of put my business on autopilot. I did nothing. I was like, I got five shows. I'm going to give my all to these five shows. I did nothing. I had two, uh, three full-time employees who, um, plus a bunch of contractors who kept things moving and kept things rolling. Um, but I kind of just backed off and I was like, you know what? I, I'm just going to leave it alone. And um, so 2017, 2017 was really like kind of restarting a brand new business and creating all these new systems and bringing in new business managers and bringing in new teams. And that's really what it comes down to is, is, you know, you identify for me, it was like, Hey, identify the 10 to 20 things that I, that I do on a consistent basis or the 10 to 20 things I need to do to make my business grow and flourish and then go, which one or two are, are uniquely, um, dependent on me and then filling in the gaps for the rest of them. And then as far as systems, it's like, okay, That walking people, the, the hardest thing, hardest time I've had in business is, is walking people through the onboarding process and how time consuming it is and making sure they're doing things correctly. So one of the things I started doing was um, just breaking it down into really small chunks. So like, you know, if, if, if someone is, is mastering or kind of three overarching systems or three overarching teams, and then each one is chunked down from there. So the teams are what we call the before unit, the during unit, and the after unit. So before is before they become a customer. So that's lead acquisition. So we have a team on lead acquisition. And then you may have someone who's in charge of Facebook. You may have someone who's in charge of, of YouTube. You may have someone who's in charge of emails. And those are all just, all your, you, you have very um, specific, what we call lag measures. And a lag measure is um, at the end of the month, I want to know how many leads we got. That's it. So that's a lag measure. But then, so that's not something you measure daily. That's something you measure monthly, but you have lead measures and lead measure is something that contributes to the lag measure. So lead measure may be, well, I posted um, something on social media. I mean, I posted a call to action on the Facebook group. I posted a YouTube video. I'm like, those are all your lead measures. The things that you know, if you do them consistently, have a very high correlation with leading to your, your KPIs, your end results. So that's how I kind of frame out the business. That's how I created um, you know, systems around the business. So the during unit is like, am I providing an ex a world-class world experience? So if it's a coaching client, if it's a, if it's a um, new program, I want to make sure the content is on point. I want to make sure my customer service is on point. I want to make sure everyone has what they need and want at all times. And they're getting a really, really great um, um service. Mm -hmm. And the end where we're doing uh, retentions and referrals, basically it's the after unit, right? Like how was your experience? How can we help? Make sure they're having something to go forward. Make sure they're getting an email every three to four weeks ongoing afterwards to make sure you're like, Hey, can we help in any way? How are you doing? Are you sustaining your results? Can we help? And uh, those simple systems, like kind of framing your business that way has really helped me. And I give full credit to this, this gentleman named Dean Jackson who, if you guys or anyone's in business, go find Dean's stuff. He's got a parking, uh, podcast called I Love Marketing, which is with Joe Polish. Most people know Joe Polish. Um, he's also got uh, The Joy of Procrastination, which is with Dan Kennedy and, uh, no, Dan Sullivan. And uh, if people don't know Dan Sullivan, those two, those two guys are 
just incredible. And um, those podcasts are maybe the most influential thing on my business. Wow. I'm going to look those up. You know, uh, Dan Sullivan is a strategic coach. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You guys yeah. thinking about joining that? Uh, Toronto-based guys? Yeah. yeah, another good Canadian. Yeah. Uh, my dad's big into that. He's been in strategic coach for a number of years. So <laughs> yeah, I, was, I was exposed to it pretty young. That's awesome. Are you? They call me once a week. I'm like, I'm very good friends with the lady now who calls me, but I just, it's just not right in my business right now. Like I need to get the systems in place. Like we spoke of, um, as we we're just talking about this kind of cycle of my business, it's just really downsized right now. And you know, it's perfect timing. Cause I don't have, you know, at one point my monthly, uh, overhead was about 50 grand for my, my staff. So it's really good that it's not there now yeah. um, because, you know, ultimately Corona was a huge hit. Um, so it's perfect timing and we're working on something really big right now. And I'll talk to you guys about that yeah. off, off recording. We're working on something that's going to be fun and it's, it's been a long ongoing project. Um, but yeah, so it's, um, it's, it's all a learning, learning process. So to wrap it all up, what are some of your current offerings? Um, I think the big thing that, the easiest point of entry for people, the big thing I've been focusing on is, is decreasing the barrier to entry. So okay, what do most people in my world actually want? Like most people will say something like you just said, like, Hey, I want to build my glutes. So I made, I made body part guides and, and I did a really good job. I went extensive. I went deep and like explaining everything you need to understand to build any body part. So I did a chest and shoulders guide. I did a back guide. I did an arms guide. I did a glutes and uh, calves. No, sorry. Glutes and hamstrings and quads and calves. That you can find on your website. Yeah. Muscleintelligence.com. Okay. Um, so you get a, an extensive guide, which is somewhere between 13 and 20 pages, depending on, um, what, uh, body part. And then you get some videos. Are those free resources? No. Free. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yep. And so obviously you, you get free and I've given one, I've given three workouts with each of them. And one is going to be a strength workout. One is going to be a hypertrophy workout. One's going to be a metabolic workout. So that's kind of how I frame programming is you have these three different types of stimuli. And, um, so I give everyone kind of one of each, so they get a taste of each to see which one they like. Mm -hmm. That also allows me to then follow up with them later and go, Hey, which of those workouts did you enjoy? If you enjoyed this one, I can offer you this. Okay. Um, and then in that funnel, once you opt in for a, um, a free guide. You can also have the opportunity to buy a 30 day program body part specialization for that program. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then seminars. Yeah. Okay. Are you doing webinars? I'm not, I should, but I'm not. Um, so additional offerings. The one thing that I think everyone kind of goes into this at some point, anyone who comes into my world is, is attempting to build their body. And so I put together a four month course called hypertrophy mastery. And it's basically like me walking through not tactics. It's not like, Hey dude, go do a bench press. It's like, Hey, this is how you do a bench press for you. Here's how to discover how to do this for your body. And that's a four month. And the reason it's four months, it's just basically two body parts a month. Um, so that's probably where I, I ultimately try to send everybody. And at the end of that, it's usually like, Hey, what do I do now? I'm like, okay, either you can take some of my workouts, which have taken a lot of time to develop, or you can go and do other people's workouts with this amazing skill set. And that's, you know, usually kind of how people fit into my world. Mm -hmm. uh, and you said about uh, courses. So yeah, obviously things have been, been put on hold, um, but doing tons of courses around the world with, you know, our great friend, Jordan, that was awesome. He's such a brilliant, amazing guy. Um, and, uh, yes, yeah, so I've got, as soon as the world opens back up, lots coming around the world. You can find those at musclecamps.com or on muscleintelligence.com as mm -hmm. well. I endorse that message. Those His courses are absolutely amazing. I seriously enjoyed it so much. Yeah, I've sat down in a lot of those uh, fitness seminars and I think yours is my top three, if not my favorite one. Thank so anyone much. listening, uh, make sure to sign up for those. Yeah. What was your biggest takeaway? Um. Just the way that you, I think for me, I never think about hypertrophy the same way as a bodybuilder does. So for me, when hypertrophy- Neither do I. Well, yeah, I guess yeah, you, <laughs> we have a, you have a different perspective. Um, so for me, I mean, hypertrophy work used to be three sets of 10. And like you said, my main focus was volume, intensity, volume and intensity, overload. progressive overload. Yeah. Just like making sure that I'm doing more and more and more. And I don't think, like you said, I ever thought about whether I'm using the right muscle for what I'm trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. It's just not something I ever even thought about. And I consider myself a moderately intelligent person. You know, it's just maybe the influence that I had from just the fitness culture in general yeah. just never let me to, to question what I was doing. I guess I was so focused on strength. I never gave that, uh, any sort of thought. Mm -hmm. So just breaking it down into, you know, what exercise am I doing? Is this exercise good for me? Mm -hmm. So it's when it comes to exercise selection, it's not just about, Hey, be back. Like what are your favorite uh, chest exercise? It doesn't, doesn't matter because yeah. what you do for you, it's not yeah. going to work for me. So, so just taking I, that individualized approach application to strength, with regard to what you just said there. So strength ultimately 
ultimately comes down to, you know, a big part of his skill, a big part of his stability. And a third part of it is just this contribution of each muscle group to the movement. So if you're squatting, well, there's a huge contribution from the quad. There's a huge contribution from the glute. So if I can get a cumulative uh, increase in one or the other, or both of those muscles ability to, con to contribute based on isolating and improving its strength, its size, its ability to contract by definition, my squats going up. Mm -hmm. So like if you say, I'm not sure how you guys break down, like teaching a skill, but like, so or teaching incre increasing a squat. So sure. Output is a big part of it, but like you got to master the skill, you got to master stability and you got to master this cumulative um, output of each muscle. And mm -hmm. if you have a poor output of your glute, well, you're losing the ability to use that thing. So if we can in some way isolate it and and then, you know, make it stronger, bigger, and then reintegrate it into the system. Now the system is by deductive reasoning stronger, right? Absolutely. And that's something people just don't think about. Like it's, it's a systems-based approach rather than just this, this like effort-based approach. Mm -hmm. Like I want to break it down and go, okay, what's the breaking point in your exercise? That's the way I look at every exercise. Like I'll watch anyone squat and I'll go, well, that's where this is breaking down. And obviously you don't know until you get to fatigue or load, mm -hmm. but like that's where you're breaking down. Let's make that piece stronger because you're only as strong as the weakest link. Mm -hmm. So that's really the way we approach it. And like we can help anybody build any body part and beauty thing, the beautiful thing of it is it, it's always the same few things. Like it's not hugely complex. Once you get to the top of the totem pole, you realize like, oh, it's always the same shit. Like if you have a weak body part in the upper body, it's probably thoracic extension, probably comes back to your poor breathing patterns, right? Most people have poor breathing. We didn't talk about that. We should have, but like most people's lack of hypertrophy or, or poorly developed mu muscles in the upper body comes back to Bad, bad breathing patterns as the foundation of human movement uh, and lower body, it's going to come down to probably just weak pelvis, right? So in uh, weaknesses or, or tightness is a sign of weakness. So if you are tight in some way, it's because you're weak. So let's get stronger at certain positions and your squat will get better. The pain will go away. The back pain will go away. The waist will get smaller. All these amazing things that people just don't consider uh, or don't correlate. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. I love that. I feel like we could go for another hour. I know. We're going to have to have you again, our podcast. Done. I'm Part coming down two. to Miami. Yeah. Done awesome. and done. Well, where can people find you? Muscleintelligence.com. I've brought everything over to one hub. Uh, Muscle Intelligence Podcast is a good place to find me. I've take, I take a, you know, muscle intelligence makes people think like I just talk about muscle and it's really far from reality, right? So we, we bring on everything to do with health and kind of this um, this framing of like, living your greatest life in a body you love. And that's really, and I intentionally choose those words because it's not just, uh, for me, it's not just about getting bigger anymore, right? It, it's, it's not that for a long time. It's about, well, I want to train hard. I want to look awesome. I want to be really strong, but I want it to be useful. Like mm -hmm. I want to be able to move. I want to be able to run. I want to be able to jump. I want to be able to feel amazing, have great relationships, um, you know, build your mind. So there's this entire resilience, anti-fragility package that goes into the podcast. Yeah, very holistic. And, I love it. Yeah. We have awesome guests and you guys are going to be Thank on there you. very soon. So people can come listen to me, return the favor and pepper you guys with questions. <laughs> awesome. awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Ben. We appreciate Thanks, it.